Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, July 24. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you are going to hear Digger. He was in giving us his winter gardening tips, the stuff to get done before spring. Uh, speaking of gardening, Andrew did a bit of gardening at our place and it didn't go so well. We'll also had a chat about uh, that. Also, we had a chat about the... Um the worst haircut of all time that I received last week and still <laughs> coping with. Um, we got to chat to uh, Jess Ribeiro uh, about her Victorian Women's Trust Feminist Fridays chat with Ella Hooper. Also talked about some other things uh, and um, got to chat to Phil Gardner, um, who did a presentation on the um, the City Mire Music Bowl for Open House Melbourne. Uh, I was interrogated on my ongoing toothache issues. And for Feature Creatures, we were joined by Mike Archer from the University of New South Wales about the discovery of a prehistoric prehistoric wombat cousin 50 years, just about in the making. I know if you remember on on Friday, maybe I just said it off air, but I said I was going to get a haircut on Friday and I was very excited about it. Um, you know, it's not often we can get haircuts. Um, just, you know, nice to, to have that opportunity to do it. Uh, but I have, re- I got the worst haircut of my life. <laughs> and I, I ended up Friday night, I just cried myself to sleep. No. I was so. Oh, jeez. I, I know. I know. Like I was. I was stressed about other things, but it was just like at the end of the day, I kind of, you know, when you're up, you know, you're upset about stuff and you can't quite work out <laughs> why. Like it's just, you know, the state of the world and everything. You're just like, oh, this is just the worst. But state for of me, the world. I, like I worked, worked it out. At the, like, I just went, oh no, it's my haircut. Like I'm really traumatized over my haircut. Do I feel um, so bad because you sat down this morning and I was like, oh, you've had a haircut. And you went, I don't want to talk about it. And then you kind of turned on your side and I just said, that is the strangest haircut I've ever seen on you yeah. because you always – it's only because you always get a, a similar style. It doesn't vary a huge – like little bits, but it doesn't vary a huge amount. I know, right? So this is the thing because I'm <coughs> – I got my, my mullets gone, which I, you know, I, you know, have I'd been growing that mullet for just over a year Um and my intention had always been to to get it cut off after comedy festival, but that didn't happen. Um, and then it was like I kind of been, you know, was like uh, I didn't want to be attached to it, sort of thing. It was like if I I'll just get it cut whenever. Um, but it turns out I was a bit, a little bit attached to it. Oh. And I just there was no kind of it was also the quickest haircut I've ever had. Like, because Kath um, had dropped me off. She goes, uh, because she was, yeah, going to go do some stuff. So she dropped me off and drove elsewhere and then was coming back. And, like, I swear it was, like, 15 minutes and I'm like, I'm done. I'm just like, what? And I'm like, I've even, it's, like, it's been washed and everything. Could could you even get through your complimentary wine? No complimentary wine. (laughs) No, like I walk in, 
and it was like it's the bare minimum of service. I walk in, and it it was cold, so I had a I had a jacket and a jumper on. Um, and she goes, and I said, I came, and, she, and no one was there to begin with. And then, and then this um, woman comes out. She goes, hi. And I'm like, oh, I've got an appointment. And she goes, oh, cool, come on through, sit down. And I'm, I'm still rugged up. And then I'm like, and then I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to put this. She goes, so do you want me to hang that up for you? And I'm like, yes, that'd be great. And I gave her my jacket. It turns out there was like a coat rack thing at, at the door, which I didn't know about. So sorry. Um, so I hung my stuff up and then I sit there and there's no music. There's just a TV playing like one of those morning news programs. Oh, God, it's stressing me out. Yes, mate. Oh. And then and then she goes, so what are we doing? And I was like, oh, okay, I'm thinking I might get rid of the, the mullet. Like we might cut that. And usually I have like, you know, it's like a I shave it around the side, so a two around the side. So maybe and she goes, so two around the back as well. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, okay. And then just plugged in the clippers, and then just cer- without any ceremony, just went. <laughs> and I just kind of watched all my hair drop to the ground and go. Oh, I don't know if this is the right person to to cut. To make, to, I don't know if this is the right time to be doing this. Anyway, I was like, oh, okay. And then she kind of went, and, and you know, at the top, do you just want to, I'm like, yeah, just kind of, um, you know, give it a bit of a trim. Still need a bit of texture and stuff. She goes, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. She goes, do you want me to wash it? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that'd be nice. And then it was, then it was done. And we kind of finished. And she, and like, it, this happens every, because people said, did, did you, no, at the time, like we traumatized at the time, and I was like, every haircut that I get, I always look at it and go, once I get my hands on it, I can get it the way I want. Like once yeah. I get some get some product of, in it, yeah. And so, so I wasn't too stressed at the time, but like when she finished, she made me look like I looked like a stereotypical heterosexual woman in her early 40s. And I know I'm a woman in her early 40s, but I really, it was just like, it wasn't me. And I was just like, it felt so, like I Kath came back and I, I put my hood up, like I would, to get in the car. Oh. And, and also, because I haven't, I still haven't seen the back. You know, normally they go, oh, check out the back and they put the mirror up so you can see what they've done at the at the back. I haven't seen it. All I've seen is everyone's reactions when I turn around. Oh, no. And people go like, oh, I've got the worst haircut. And from the front, because I've managed to fix it at the front, I've managed to get product and stuff and it's been a couple of days so it's kind of I can deal with it. But every time I go, because I'll say to people, I've got the worst haircut, and they go, oh, it looks, I think it looks all right. And then I turn around and they go, oh, oh, no. <laughs> now I feel bad that I And I don't know. Responded. And I still haven't seen what's happened at the back, but all I, I'm just going by everyone's reactions. It's, and not, it's, it's not bad. It's just different. I think it's because you've had such a consistent hair. No, Sarah, it's bad. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a bad haircut. Oh. You, that's not you – don't, you don't have to feel bad about it. I know. It. 
Did you think I about mean, keeping the? Oh, sorry, I was going to say, did you think about keeping the mullet, like the hair, off the ground? Oh, no, 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 because it was just, it was just hair. I just wanted a bit of, uh, I don't know, a bit of, like I, I think, you know, a good hairdresser is. I never realised that the the time factor would was such would make such a difference. Like when a hairdresser spends a bit of time in and going, okay, what are we doing? And okay, yep, yep. And then getting to know you and your hair a bit better. Do you know what I mean? There was just like, you know, a good hairdresser kind of um, is a bit more thoughtful rather than just, oh, yeah, I'll just yeah. shuck it off. Like, Especially no, in- it was a sheep. It was like she was steering a lamb. Like it was just hooked, hooked her leg over your shoulder and yeah. Especially in these unprecedented times, uh, going to a hairdresser is supposed to be a luxurious, totally decadent time for you. Oh, and, and, and also, don't you sh- don't you shampoo before? Did I get confused? Is that? I think some. I well, because we're not in in Melbourne. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, we're allowed to, you know, it's different. No, no. I mean, shampoo before the haircut. But yeah, usually you do, right? Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, sorry, but she was just like, "Do you want to wash it to get all the shaved bits out?" I was like, "Oh yeah, may as may as well." Um, but yeah, it was just, and also. What's what she gonna do? Just like shake them out with her hands? Oh, I don't know. It was nice, you know, but also it was, um, you know, when they they ask you questions, and it's like you're just asking this because you ask this to everyone and you don't actually care. Like it's that. So you know, what are you doing? And I kind of I kind of test the waters a bit and just go, oh, I've just. You know, have have a bit of work, but just you know, chill that weekend. And then it's like, what do you do for work? I said, well, I'm um, I work in radio and I do comedy. <clears throat> and then that was the end of that conversation. There was no, she had no in- interest at all. Like, oh, what radio station do you work at? Well, oh, you do comedy. Oh, that's interesting. Where do you do? Like, could not give two hoots. And it was like, just oh, anyway. Anyway, it was a, a, I'm fine. Do you want to see the back of it, Jackie? Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. The worst, isn't Ta- it? Put, put, take your head headphones off, Jess, so we can see. We'll take a picture. Put it. Yeah, oh. right. Full on. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Open House Melbourne 2020 is well underway, celebrating architecture and design in the city with a host of online events. This year, one landmark getting the Open House treatment is the iconic My Music Bowl, the multi-purpose outdoor venue in the lush surrounds of King's Domain. And sharing his passion and expertise in a live event will be Phil Gardner, Principal Director at Structural Engineering Firm WSP, who, ahead of his presentation, joins us on the line now. Phil, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you, and good morning. Good morning to you. In in your view, what makes the Sydney My Music Bowl so special? Well, look, apart from the attachment we all have, because, you know, pretty much everyone in Melbourne, I think, has been there at, at some stage, and we've all got, you know, good memories from our kids, at, whether it be Carols by Candlelight or, you know, if, if you're my age, you know, <laughs> great concerts in the, um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and even recently, uh, but but apart from that, from an architectural and engineering point of view, it is just such a 
uh, a pure, simple, but um, but but beautiful building, and and very much of its time in that sort of nineteen fifties in in Melbourne and Australia, when some, when some great buildings were were delivered, um, quite innovative. And so, quite, yeah. yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, what 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 does get your engineering juices flowing? Um, look, it, it's sort of mathematically quite quite pure. So, so Bill Irwin, who who was the engineer who who designed it with Barry Patton, um, the architect, he he previously only a couple of years before done the Olympic pool. You know, now the Lexus Centre, the home of the fabulous Collingwood Football Club, <laughs> um, just just across the river, uh, which again is mathematically pure. And, and then almost at the same time, he was given the commission for the the bowl. He was given the commission for the Academy of Science Dome in Canberra, which which is also it, it's sort of a pure shell. Com- Compression structure. If I put a bit of engineering speak in, uh, and the bowl is sort of the opposite. It's all, almost the you know the negative and the positive image of the of, of, of an engineering principle in that it's a pure tensile structure, just relying on cables and. And we all sort of know how cables work because we, we see them, you know, walking down the street, whether it be power power lines or, or tram lines or whatever, they get that beautiful catenary shape. And and the bowl relies very much on those on those principles, just, uh, you know, two simple columns and a whole lot of cables um, and some quite simple cladding that came from the aviation industry. Um, and it all, all went together um, and looks looks beautiful. And how does it compare to other bowls, like the Hollywood Bowl in LA? So the the Hollywood the original Hollywood Bowl was actually the the in you know one of the inspirations for the design competition that was held um, for for this. So Robin Boyd, well-known architectural name, working with uh, Roy Grounds um, and Frederick Romberg. The, so they were the team that that started off delivering the art centre in in Melbourne. They they had an image of reproducing the Hollywood Bowl, which is a sort of 1920s, 30s concrete shell structure. Uh, and it was progressing along that way and, and until, from what I read, a, a young Barry Patton um, had seen a couple of very small um, tensile structures like these in, in the UK and uh, and came up with this concept and wowed the, uh, the Music Bowl Trust and the government and decided that that's what they wanted to go to. And and it's very pioneering because, you know, a lot of people know there's a famous German architect, Frey Otto, who did a lot of tensile, tensile structures, and he did a lot for the um, Munich Olympics, which which were quite well known. How has the structure... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go for it. I, I didn't mean to say, interrupt. No, it's okay. I was just just because this is an important point. Um, everyone thought that this was inspired by Frey Otto, but it's actually this preceded those buildings by 15 years. So this this is actually... It's, oh. it's quite pioneering. Mm. I was going to say, how has the structure or the bowl changed at all, if at all, to kind of adapt over the years? Uh, it, it has changed. So uh, Gregory Burgess, another uh, quite well-known uh, Melbourne architect out, out of Collingwood, um, he was given the commission in the late 90s to extend the canopy further because the, the seats really didn't get much shelter. It was just the stage. Um, so they extended it further um, by, you know, out of, I think there used to be, 21 cables and now there's 27 you know so it was extended further and and they improved you know the back of house so the performers actually got some real facilities and the loading bays um put some toilets in you know which is very handy for a 200,000 strong crowd um all, all those sort of things so they they made it more friendly for both uh, the performers and the and the occupiers but um, but without changing it, you know, it still looks the same. It's still the exact same concept. It's just it just got stretched a little bit longer, and repaired it at that time too. It had been repaired a few times because you know they they need love old buildings. 
And uh, in in the presentation, you're utilising images and multimedia from the the history of the uh, the bowl. What catches yes. what catches your eye in these archives? Um, look, there's there's some great images of it of it being constructed. Um, so getting that main cable, the the very front cable, which weighed about seven and a half tons, into position, you know, with cranes and scaffold. But then it's sort of like a, a giant spider web before the cladding comes on. And there's some great images of uh, you know they they they're named as the Italian riggers crawling over it, you know, with no harnesses, you know, no, they just crawled on it. But um, that was a different era where where safety, safety was still important, but people sort of looked after their own and these guys were trained, you know, that was their life. They were a bit more like circus performers, I guess you might say, and, um, and they did it and did it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some of your, indulge us in some of your highlights <laughs> from the decades of your love of the bowl. Uh, look, I, I can remember going to Carols by Candlelight as a very young child in the pouring rain. Uh, and what I remember is the rain. That's that's sort of what I remember. <laughs> but uh, but then after that, my first real memory of uh, of the bowl uh, is my first concert on my own as a fifteen year old was um, the nineteen seventy two Moonbuck uh, concert, which was about two months after Sunbury. And Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Uh, I think Max Merritt was there. There was a few other bands, but we all remember Thorpe um, doing, you know, uh, Beep Up a Lula and some people I know think I'm crazy. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, and that was that was my second real concert. I'd been to one at Festival Hall. So I remember that. And then I was lucky enough, uh, when I was an engineering student in the 90s, I worked the donut van on the hill. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> so, I, so I got free concerts and I got I – got, <laughs> I got Bob Dylan, I got the Beach Boys, Rod Stewart, ELO, Stevie Nicks, you know, and Fleetwood Mac when all boys of that age loved Stevie Nicks. Um, and uh, I think I got Wings and Neil Diamond as well. Certainly Neil Diamond. I can't, I can't quite remember whether I got the Wings concert as well. I think I did. And, so. and Donuts. And Jam Donuts. Look, I learned to hate Jam Donuts. I, oh. I have, <laughs> I have, re, I have reacquainted with them over the years, particularly at the football. It's you know, it's a bit of a tradition. But um, how was the yeah, sound but, in the donut van? Um, <laughs> look, when you had something like uh, Billy Thorpe playing, it didn't really matter what the sound <laughs> quality was because all of Melbourne got the concert. Um, and, and, you know, and unfortunately that's one of the things that means those concerts don't happen so much at the Dome anymore because, you know, there's a lot more people live in those vicinities. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I should have added, you know, from an engineering point of view, that is one of the principles of, of, of uh, a bowl. So it's dug into the hill so the city noise doesn't get in so much, you know, and disturb things. You know, it sits in a, sits in a hole in the ground and then the canopy you know, um, does a great acoustic job of projecting the sound out um, sound out to the crowd. And it still does work really well. You know, I got to see um, Florence and the Machine there last year and uh, sound quality was great. First mm. time I'd ever sat in a real seat. Oh, that's it. And just quickly, uh, is, it con- is the Seekers Homecoming concert, is that controversial? I mean, I know it's broken records. It holds the Guinness World Records as the, mm. what, the greatest attendance at a concert in the Southern Hemisphere. But if... Did they include people just turning up for Moomba? Uh, no, I think I, – I don't know how they did the crowd count. From memory, it's 220,000, 225,000. Mm. Um, that, that Moomba concert had 200,000. 
I had a feeling that that record might have been broken by Crowded House on the Sydney, okay. uh, oh, yeah. Sydney, but on yeah uh, Sydney Opera House steps. But I'm not sure. I didn't. I, I should do the research before I do the talk. So <laughs> so that if if Melbourne still holds a record, we can claim it because those things right. are really important. Well, uh, as part of Open House Melbourne Online, the structural engineering history of the Sydney Mine Music Bowl is a free event. It's this Thursday, July 23, from 5:30 p.m. And uh, for more details, head to openhousemelbourne.org. And we've been speaking with uh, music. Bowl Buff and structural engineer Phil Gardner. Thanks heaps, Phil. Thank you. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Justin Digger Calvary joins us once again for Down and Dirty. Hey, Digger, how's tricks? Yeah, good, good. How are you guys? Pretty good. Yeah, thing. well. Good. Mm. All fired up? Yeah, bloody oath, always. <laughs> Who are you talking to here? Uh, what about what about you? What's how's winter treating you? Um, winter's good, and it's kind of you know I've been sitting around on the weekend thinking about okay, we're into the third quarter now, which is the premiership quarter. We've got to get some stuff done before winter's over because we are on the downward side of it. You know, before we know it. Six, what is it, six, eight weeks away, weather's going to start looking a little bit different. So always trying to look at positive stuff at the moment. Um, so I made up a little to-do list of jobs to get done before winter finishes, <laughs> just to inspire us to get off our bum and do a bit more stuff, you know. Um, so probably the main one to think about is you've got to complete all the tasks that are involved with deciduous plants, so the plants that have lost all their leaves through the winter time. So you've got to finish all the pruning, which is, you know, a bit of a task. A lot of people are a bit scared about doing pruning of, of deciduous stuff, but get into it. They'll bounce back quickly, and that's the beauty of pruning deciduous stuff at this time of year. That then uh, six weeks or so, they'll all start reshooting, and even if you think you've stuffed it up, they'll come back and you can just start again. So, Jez, I know you guys have put in a lot of trees this winter, so make sure we that have. they get their hair, big haircuts. Their first haircut is a really important one. It needs to be a little bit on the heavier side rather than lighter. All right. There you go. There's some messages in that for you, Jez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Yeah. The first prune, essentially with deciduous trees when they first go in, um, the 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 height of the where you make your first cut is essentially as low as you'll ever get fruit. So if you if you kind of wimp out a little bit and just take a little bit off the top, you'll never get fruit any lower than that point. So I reckon you should be where the branches start to come out from the trunk within about 30 centimetres of there. So it's a pretty heavy haircut. All right. Yeah, yep. I feel that. I can relate. Um, <laughs> so, like, when you buy the the trees, um, they don't prune it. So, like, it's not already pre-pruned. No, no, it's not pre-pruned at all. So this is where, because you need to kind of decide what sort of shape you want it to be. So you can ask nurseries to do it for you. And I used to love doing that when I worked in nurseries because you take a tree that's nearly two metres high and cut it down to about half a metre high right in front oh, of their face. Fit it in my <laughs> car. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we'd say. It's like, it will fit into your car now. You'll be fine. Um, but really, because, you know, you're looking for outward-facing buds. So you're setting up... The first five years of the tree is really about setting up its shape. So you need to look at where the buds are, pointing in what direction. That's where the new growth is going to go, just so that you don't crowd up the tree. Okay. Stupid, stupid question here. What, what if it's not a clean cut? Um, well, like anything, you wouldn't want to go into surgery and they use dirty tools. So, um, yeah, you can get infections and all different sorts of things in it. So 
clean, sharp tools is always best. Okay. But it's um, not going to stop. It's not going to stop fruit from appearing. Well, anyway, whatever. Just clean your tools. How hard can it be, Daniel? Exactly. <laughs> clean the tools. Um, yeah. Because you've selected this particular node to go to for the new growth to come out. If it gets an infection, you'll have to do a recut, um, which may not be to the, the next node down. May not be where you'd want the, the direction that you want the growth to go into. So you could end up go, keep going further and further and further before you know it. Um, you've just got a stump. <laughs> yeah. All right. So get on top of your pruning. Get on top of the pruning. Um, start making some compost. So, you know, it's going to take a couple of months before the compost is ready, which is perfect because you want it ready for your spring planting. So get out there, mow all the neighbours' lawns, um, get all your old papers, your records, your tax records, whatever, and shred them up, cut them up so you've got a whole heap of stuff for composting. And then just compost in situ. So maybe think about where you're going to put a little veggie garden in the springtime and make a compost pile there now, turn it once a week, and the job will be done come, you know, mid-September. Are you in trouble with the ATO digger? Um, Always. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Perennially. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, You know you have to keep your records for seven years. Surely you know that, don't you? No, that's right. Yeah, (laughs) and your parole records and all those things. (laughs) With the composting, can you just – it is. Is it? Can it be too potent? Like, if I made a compost pile next to my little garden, I worry that in three months it might be a bit intense for it. Or is it? Can you never no. have too much compost? You can never have too much compost. Okay. No, never ever. It can be. You know, it can be a little bit intense as far as its pH goes, its acidity or alkalinity. But really, um, there's no such thing as really bad compost. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can always just tone it down. It's kind of like it, it, Can you make a a chocolate cake that's too rich, probably, but yeah, you know, it's not that bad in the scheme of things. Okay. Um, next one, start researching all of your seeds. So everyone's on the internet at the moment, all day, every day. Look up seed companies and get all these incredible seeds for vegetables that will arrive just in time for your new spring planting. So it's it's I know it's a bit of a nerdy, haughty thing to do, but to research vegetable varieties that you've never heard of mm. it's actually quite fun a little bit dangerous if you're doing it at night because you'll end up you know add to cart add to cart add to cart before you know <laughs> it. You, you got 748 dollars worth of pumpkin seeds but you know um to get the seeds ready because the next one a great diy little thing to do in the next couple of weeks is make a little hothouse or a little igloo so that you can raise all these little seeds into seedlings. And I'm sure Kath will be looking for a new project about now, Jez. So. Oh, mate, she's, <laughs> she's already doing it. It's already happening. And our laundry is our little hothouse where the seeds are being cultivated in there. Ah, magic. Laundry is yeah. a good one. It generates, you know, a bit of heat and it's, you know, fairly stable temperatures. So, yeah, you need some sort of – so you can look on the internet, but the simplest thing would be maybe even a, I know, a polystyrene box with a sheet of – plastic over it or an old glass window if you've got you know just doing some renovations something to trap light and heat would be perfect Mm. is there a tip to uh when you are buying seeds is there something to look out for that separates the the quality from the maybe not so much um yeah i'm an organic gardener so i'm always looking for what's called open pollinated varieties rather Mm -hmm. than hybridized varieties so obviously you know we get genetically modified stock um, which is, is not, you know, it's not my preference. Everyone's got their own choice. But So I look for open-pollinated heirloom varieties. Okay. And it says that on the tin? It says that on the packet, yeah. Okay, cool. And the company themselves would be very, you know, 
it's that's kind of like a, a sticking point. It's like, hey, we are open pollinated organic seed, heirloom that's seed. Sweet. Your right. um, winter jobs are so much more exciting than I thought they would be because I look out at our backyard and think of what we need to do in the garden and it's just cleaning. So that was much more exciting. Uh, well, it's not always glamorous. I spent a lot of Sunday you know, weeding a whole lot, lot of stuff and I transplanted a couple of trees too. So deciduous trees, um, I did some transplanting. So we were up to our up to our knees in mud really for most of Sunday. So it wasn't totally glam. No, but fun. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, digging holes. Is, that, is there anything holes. else you can be doing? Like winter gardens are just kind of. I mean, mine has is halfway there. But is there anything you can be doing to the to the veggie patches themselves at the moment that'll ensure that spring's going to look good, or do you just Absolutely. let it all keep growing? Let it all keep growing, but um, really good to make sure that we this hydration that we've had, the rain that we've had recently, this is the sort of thing that you can't let that evaporate. So oh. before we know it, the temperature is going to rise and it's, it's and it's going to want to you know transpire out of there. So even think about at minimum a nice big thick layer of mulch, mm-hmm. so that will insulate the soil and stop the water coming out. But also it'll start building heat up in it because if you've got a thick layer of mulch that'll start to decompose. It's kind of like composting in miniature and that'll warm up the soil prematurely. So then you can even, when you do plant your seeds or your seedlings in there, the soil's going to be a little bit warmer than what the air temperature is, which is perfect to accelerate growth. Lovely. All right. Winter tricks. Instructive as always. Uh, thank you, Digger. Is there, is there anything else on your mind? No, no, no. I've got lots on my mind, but not about garden. <laughs> <laughs> Happy homeschooling. Cheers, mate. <laughs> thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. I don't know how you're doing it, Daniel Burt, but you're here with, with a tooth problem, with a mm. toothache. The Tell worst ache it. of all. Like, I know there's toothaches and then there's toothaches. Yeah. You're in the latter. Tell I us think... about it. Um, well, I've been going to the dentist, just, you know, trying to, if you'll pardon the imagery, chip away at a tooth problem. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and it just keeps going. I'm going to the dentist like once a fortnight at the, you know, m- maybe even more frequently. And I got a crown put on and, um, at the end of it, in fact, I think I maybe fell asleep during the procedure. Did you get the um, gas? No, I, I I got some injection, but anyway, I think I woke up snoring. Anyway, so oh. I uh, I woke up, and by the way, it's if I it, there's just so much spit flying out of my mouth. It's like yeah. it's oh. like a John Cusack film. It's like I don't know how. Are they <laughs> are they wearing? Is the does the dentist wear one of those like Ned Kelly visors? Uh, he wore I think. I was knocked out. He was he was all masked up and he had gloves on and everything. Get so a he welding mask on. Yeah, <laughs> welding mask. Anyway, at the end of it, he goes, "Look, we've exposed a nerve." And, <gasps> um, and See, he goes, it's that <laughs> you've got an exposed nerve in yeah. your mouth." Yeah, that's not a getting, small thing. And he goes, "It's going to hurt, and uh, it's going to hurt." Just keep pay attention. It might hurt for fifteen seconds at a time or fifteen minutes. Anyway. I was fine. I was fine for a, a few days and then cooked steak and boom, it's like the floodgates have opened. Oh, Daniel. And it's like four hours. Like it's 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 screaming on the inside, like screaming. Um, 
and uh, so so yeah, absolute agony. And now I can't really eat anything. Anyway, I'll get it sorted out. I'll take some drugs. It'll be fine. Oh, but I so. like I just I cannot. I think if you look up what's the worst pain to be in, yeah, an exposed nerve in your mouth is up there. I feel like that and a back, back problems and teeth. You can't see it. Like yeah. people, yeah. it's 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 hard for others to conceptualize. I'm obsessed. Yeah. I'm obsessed with that. That kind of internal pain, and you seem so jolly and like you're doing this thing and so you go oh yeah he's got a bit of tooth pain whatever but actually it's the worst pain you've ever felt well i've i've also just been going to the dentist so much that i even what's the point he saw me yeah exactly but he 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 saw me i think i must have brought in some magazines and he's like oh what are you reading so tom was reading and uh and then he's Business there's a review weekly. Yeah, well, it, it was a few. It was like a nineteen ninety eight New Yorker magazine and something else. So he uh, he he offers me a book from the bookshelf. I think he saw me eyeing off the bookshelf. Anyway, I'm I'm going there so often. He's loaned me a book. Oh my god! Because wow. <laughs> he knows that he'll get it back. Because I'll just see him so much. Anyway, so that's exciting. I get a book out of it. But also, they were monitoring my sleep. Uh, for you know, seeing if my t- tooth related oh, issues, grinding oh. your teeth, yeah, grinding. So they put they 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 hooked me up to a machine in my sleep, and uh, so I wrap it around my finger, and my my fingers like, you know, there's a red light on it, so yeah. I like have to put it under the Jesus. covers. Anyway, I must have tied it on too tight, and I woke up. It <laughs> felt like my finger was going to drop off. <laughs> oh. And, and then they gave me this mouth guard, and the mouth guard is so – it's temporary, but it's so cumbersome and embarrassing. Once you put it in, it's like lights out. Like, I'll put yeah. it in now, and then if Jessie comes in to ask me a question or <laughs> looks at me, <laughs> I, I look like she has an intruder in the house that's going to do some real damage. Oh, my God. Oh, my oh. God. He's put it in. Like, there's no <laughs> – it's just not a good look. No, no, actually, kind of, kind of look like Milo Kerrigan. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know so, if it's unthreatening or threatening. I can't decide. Oh, oh. really big pearly whites. Give us a look at your big pearly whites. Oh my God. <laughs> oh damn you for taking a photo of that. So. Um, uh, Anyway, I, you know, I've had experience in toothaches um, and I had a, like an infection, like an abscess in, in my, when my wisdom teeth first started coming through and it like had pushed on another tooth and it was just all like, it was the most amount. Of, and it, it was like, at least I had um, like my mouth was swollen. Like, so it, just you know, one side of my mouth had gone out, so yeah. I got the sympathy. So yeah. I, yeah. You know, I was like holding, and like, oh yeah, look at that. That's so painful. But it's so weird when you have a toothache. It's like, where, where? If you don't have a dentist, a regular dentist, or if it, or if it's the weekend and your dentist, where do you, where do you go? <laughs> like, I was it like I've never been in so much pain before, and the whole time I had it, I was just like, I don't know what to do. How I. Where's the emergency? Well, for... if you present to emergency, would they give you? Would they help you out? Do you reckon, or do you think they'd just give you Panadol? I don't 
don't know. Or maybe there isn't an emergency dentist, uh, you know, kind of situation. But, yeah, I don't know. I was just like, it's it's so weird that you can, you know, um, like anywhere else on your body, like if there's a problem. But if it's inside your mouth, it's like, no, nah, that's just for dentists. I just felt, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I relate to your pain. Thank you. Yeah, he's the dentist was calling me to see if I was checking in to see if I was okay, but I missed his calls. Uh, and I just I've he never had. Okay. He he wants to know if I'm okay. No, does he think you're okay? Because you didn't answer. Well, probably exactly. Uh, but you know, it's, I've never had such a personal relationship with the dentist in the whole life. Yeah. The, the, the 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 boss of the dentist he comes in he chats we talk for forty five minutes about the world like it's a real family affair and uh, I just I I really hope I have nice teeth after all of this because <laughs> Jesus Christ it's it's and especially the the sleep thing was just so, you know, like I'm charging this device. I have to have it next to the Bluetooth on my phone so it tracked me. Then Gabe cried and I, you know, so I blew that up for a night. I, I ruined the data. And then he brings, uh, maybe I don't have the, you know, here's a chart of my sleep that is, oh, oh wow. Jesus Christ. This is a great show and tell with Daniel. <laughs> You're like Norman Swan, but for teeth. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. A recent paper published in Scientific Reports by an international team of paleontologists describes the long-forgotten remains of a giant wombat-like animal that roamed Australia 25 million years ago and that has revealed an all-new family of ancient marsupials. To tell us about the discovery, we're joined for Feature Creatures this week by co-author of the paper, Professor Mike Archer from the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Professor Archer, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. Uh, Take us back to your first encounter with this creature. Yeah, well, it seems like it was a million years ago. Well, it was certainly about millions of years, but for me, it was 1973. And uh, we'd heard a rumor that there were fossil bones in this uh, dry salt lake um, in the just east of the Flinders Ranges in the northern part of South Australia. And uh, Dick Tedford from the American Museum, myself, uh, Rod Wells from, the, from Flinders University, Neville Pledge from South Australia Museum, and a bunch of other people all got together. And uh, we went up into the desert. It was a long run. And when we got there uh, on the lake, we did find bits of bone. It was quite interesting, but they were not what we expected at all. It became clear that what we were looking at was some kind of giant poops here in in big sort of masses. Um, You know, they were like about a meter, meter and a half in diameter. So we spent the first couple of days trying to figure out who the pooper was. And uh, we could certainly see what the pooper had been eating 25 million years ago. They'd been eating ringtail possums and lungfish and eat strange things. Even freshwater dolphins had been part of um, its dinner. But we still, to this day, don't know who was doing the pooping. But that led us onto the lake, and that was the important thing. And as we walked around on the dry salt lake, we occasionally saw limb bones sticking up through the clay. And this was exciting. If we'd been there a year before, we wouldn't have seen this because the lake would have been covered in sand as it is now. 
but it was just serendipitous that that particular year, the, uh, the wind had blown it off, and here were these skeletons showing up. So we started to probe the surface of a lake with metal poles, like you were acupuncturing the, the skin of the earth. And if it hit something hard, then we, we dug down through the clay. And that's how we found this skeleton and a number of other weird animals that had uh, got stuck in this, what was then gooey mud, 25 million years ago. Hmm. And then what happened nearly 50 years later? <laughs> it, took, it took a long time. This is the, the longest incubation period for a fossil to, to reach <laughs> the public eye that I've ever been involved in. Well, what happened was, uh, because the, the skeletons were in clay, hard clay, we, we encased them in plaster of Paris. That made them very well protected for transport. They were all headed initially back to the American Museum of Natural History, where they were to be prepared. They had, uh, Dick Tedford from there had uh, acquired the funding for the expedition, so it was his right to get these prepared and studied first there. But he had a lot of other things on his plate. He was a specialist in the evolution of dogs and so on. So while he gave this giant block of plaster of Paris containing this weird animal to the preparators, uh, it was years before it actually got fully prepared, many years. And about, no, it was about 1990, I guess, sometime around then, he, he turned up in the University of New South Wales with some teeth out of this specimen. And he showed them to me because we were finding fossils from Riversley in northwest Queensland. And they were clearly similar sorts of things. So we agreed to work on this together. You know, this was a long time now after it had been found, but we we're going to do it. And then, unfortunately... He fell off the perch. He went back to the American Museum and, and died. This is very sad. And so it put another big break in the progress on this project. And it, it was years later again when my, some of my Ph.D. students, um, Julian Loys, Robin Beck, Pip Brewer, all over the world, from the American Museum to Salford University, they all got together, um, saw the specimen in the American Museum, asked if they could work on it, not aware of the backstory. And when they realized what it was, they contacted me knowing I might be interested. And at that point, I laughed and told them about the whole backstory to this specimen. So that's why it took so long. It's had uh, continual discoveries and then sleep periods and then discoveries again. Goodness. But at last, it's out. We now, and, have it, we now have it announced. And what's the significance of this marsupial? Oh, there's many things that's of interest to this. One, one is... Um, it, it's another group of these weird, what we call vombatiform or, or wombat-shaped type extinct marsupials. This is a weird group. Most of the members are, are extinct. It included things like marsupial lions and marsupial tapers. The only survivors of this great group are koalas and wombats today. So this added yet another huge chunk of the tree of life of this very weird group of marsupials um, that probably at one point dominated the continent. They were incredible animals. They included things as big as the diprotodon, three tons, the largest marsupial ever. So here was another giant group that we didn't know about. So that was the first step. The second thing is that it has very thin enamel on its teeth. We know it was a plant eater, but there's no way it could eat abrasive plants. So it was living in a time of lush vegetation that was through central Australia. So it, it's helping us put together a whole picture of the transformation of the continent through natural cycles of climate change. It, when this animal was alive, it was a very good time to be a marsupial, I can tell you. But mm. slowly, most of these groups vanished, and they left us today only in this kind of a marsupial group with koalas and wombats today. What was the greatest reason for this group vanishing over time? 
Yeah, unmistakably, it's climate change. I mean, there's always been a, you know, a, a bloodthirsty argument about what caused the megafaunal animals in Australia to go extinct. And there's two camps. One camp says, ah, humans did it. They came in, thought, look at all this dinner, and they slaughtered everything. Um, this is the kind of uh, blitzkrieg idea. Well, there, frankly, there is no support, no actual evidential support for that. But the other uh, argument is climate change. And for that, we see constant evidence that this has been happening throughout time. Every time the world has cycled through one of these greenhouse, icehouse cycles, things go extinct, and then subsequently new things evolve. And of course, we're in another one of these cycles now, but we're triggering this one. Uh, but we can expect, looking backwards, that it's going to lead to extinctions in the way that it did in the past. And that's almost certainly what took out our dear friend here, Mukapurna, was a climate change from a really lush vegetation, um, forest-covered Australia, to become the beginning of the dry continent that's now 44% arid. And that a lot of animals went out with that, that climate change event. So that's why we're worried about the message for the future. We have to learn from mm. the past, or we are going to see it again. So Mukapurna is massive. Give us a sense of the scale. And also, if it's a burrower, like at modern <laughs> wombats, that sounds like burrowing pretty big holes. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't want to be standing on the ground when one of these things went underneath, if it was a burrower. But we actually don't think it was wombat burrowing um, animal. We're talking about an animal here that's about four or five times larger than the largest wombat. I mean, you're talking subway tunnels underneath the ground here. But we think it was a digger. There's no, no question about looking at the, the uh, musculature that would have attached to the arms. This was a powerful digger. But we think what we call, uh, we think it was a scratch digger, <clears throat> not a burrower. And he was chasing something within the ground, maybe soft tubers underneath uh, vegetation. The, the re reality is we have no idea. We're sure it was, a, it was able to dig, but we're equally certain it probably, certain probable, that it was not a burrower uh, digging giant burrow systems like wombats do today. Okay. Which can be sure it wasn't a tree climber either because its claws indicate it was walking on the ground even though it had a cousin like koala sitting up in the tree, um, you know, pooping on top of it. Yeah. That's uh, who the pooper was. That's, I can't oh, no. believe <laughs> That's, that's my, my oh, favorite no. Andy Griffith book. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, a pooper mystery, and I, I, I really wish we could figure that out because there was some animal, you know, everything that could have been doing the pooping, and that includes things like crocodiles, even large turtles, all of those were in the poop. So this was, wow. this was some kind of very bizarre animal that was possibly even eating its own kind just to create a mystery for us into the future. We just don't know what did it. Mm. Does it shine any light on marsupials today? Um, only it, it gives you a, you know, as a paleontologist, it gives you a sense of loss. I mean, many of these animals, as you discover how fascinating they were and how they would have enriched the the diversity, the biodiversity of Australia. There's a, there's a keen sense of loss that we still don't have some of them with us today. Uh, one of the mm -hmm. ones I would give my eye teeth to have back again would be things like marsupial lions. Imagine how exciting that would make tourism in Australia today if you had marsupials <laughs> out there the size of African lions that ate the tourists. But <laughs> we don't have a lot of these things anymore. So uh, I, I guess that's that's the, the poignant part of it. But then you get excited by discovering that you can work out the relationships of all of these things. It's like putting a, a puzzle together. 
um, that is the deep time story of Australia. And, and yet you're, you're just given, you're, you're sort of drip fed, you know, one little puzzle piece at a time. But as, as you put each little new puzzle piece in place, the, the picture just gets more and more fascinating. It just makes you hungrier to find more of those puzzle pieces to, to understand what Australia was really like. I mean, it's strange enough now. We've got the most distinctive biota in the whole world because of the, the 50 million years of isolation that Australia's had. It's done amazing things. But when you scratch below that surface, it, it gets even stranger as you go back through time. And we discover all the even weirder groups that just never made it through into the present. All right. Well, the paper on the Makapuna is in Scientific Reports, and uh, its co-author is Professor Mike Archer from the University of New South Wales. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Triple R. Life in um, lockdown means that um, if you're living with other people, you're probably going to um, try and be nice to them, do nice things for them. Um, Sarah, how's that working out for you? It's good. I feel like I'm getting double the kindness because I'm pregnant from Andrew. Yeah. So I do actually wonder what this experience would be like if I weren't pregnant, but I don't have that to compare to. Does that make sense? Ah. As yeah. if he'd care, would he care that well, much? Well, yeah, would I be getting as much kindness and, and good treatment? I like to assume I would, he's a good person, but yeah. I just feel like I'm getting extra care and maybe extra understanding when I'm frustrated or tired or things are a bit, you know, whatever, not, yeah. not coping in the house. Uh, also because he's probably picked up more of the slack with housework. Uh, he and, he and, and he's going to lots of efforts to... Um, just to make to make my day feel better when he when he notices that I might be upset about something and also trying to anticipate I think trying to anticipate what what's upsetting me so sometimes I'm not good at vocalizing I'll just be uh, and it just might be that the house is a bit messy and I haven't got around to it or whatever and he'll kind yeah. of step in and do start doing a few things so it kind of eases my mind and then I'll start cleaning as well um, although the other day. I've been taught, I like, I feel bad because it's my own fault. I've been, I keep saying, I really need to weed the garden. I really need to weed the garden because we've grown this vegetable garden, which I grew, which I planted when I was in my first trimester. And it was a very difficult thing to do. I was nauseous. So I had to, every time I bent down, I dry reached, but I was really determined to get this garden in because I just was so Come on, broccoli. stubborn. Oh, no. I like, they don't have that on Gardening Australia. I know, they should. <laughs> I wanted those snow peas so bad. (laughs) Gardening for the pregnant. (laughs) And I need some kind of pregnancy tools. Anyway, I couldn't bend down, but I got it done. Like a spew bucket. A spew weeding mat. (laughs) And some kind of uh, claws that help you dig. At the moment, I need claws because I'm finding it hard to bend down already. And so Mm. I can't. It's very difficult to go out and weed. And I've just watched – I've stood at the window in our lounge room and watched the weeds grow, literally. Like just stood there and gone. They're getting worse and worse. They're choking the vegetables, the few vegetables that have thrived. Most of them have died, which is upsetting. But I just can't well, get – I've got some good fertiliser. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is very true. Right, so I, I've been saying – I keep saying I've got to get out there and weed the garden, got to get there and weed the garden. Walk, we go for a walk. Come back and I go, I've got to get around to the weed that garden. 
And then I came in the other day and I looked around and this patch of the garden had been weeded. And I thought, oh, let's, oh Andrew must have started it just as a kind of, I'll just get it started for her and then she'll do it and yeah. won't have to worry about it. But um, he's ripped out this beautiful ornamental bush. <laughs> oh. The only single bush that I've managed to grow successfully since I've moved into that place. Which, you can replant it. Can you replant it? It's gone. It's like it's in the – it's gone because it took me a long time to notice that he'd ripped it out and it grows these beautiful flowers. It flowers most of the year. The only time of the year it doesn't flower is in the winter for about a month and it must have stopped flowering not long ago and he thought it was just – and it does kind of look like a giant – it would look like a giant very nice weed and it sits next to this <laughs> – it sits next to this memorial statue of my mum who's passed away and it's this really nice part of the garden that's like this statue of my mum and these tulips that I planted for her and there's this beautiful bush and he's and he ripped it right he ripped it out it's totally gone and I went into the house and I was like oh I can see that you started gardening uh, uh, weeding he's like yeah I just you know you keep mentioning it and I thought I'd get it started and I was like you know the only thing that you've ripped out is an ornamental bush that I planted three years ago um, next to my mum's memorial. And he's like, oh, my God. He goes, I thought it was a giant weed. And I was like, no, it's it's not. It was part of a memorial oh. t- to my mum. Uh, and he's, he was just so, you know when someone's so upset they can't? He's like, oh. And he just went into his room and started doing some stuff. And then I felt so guilty because I was like, I should never have, I felt like I should never mention it because the guilt he is feeling is so extreme. I think that I now feel terrible. I just wish I'd not mentioned it because yeah. I just feel because so, he just feels so terrible for doing this. Oh. And then he cooked me this big dinner that night and I'm like, you don't have to you tried to do something yeah. nice. You well, just <clears throat> you just thought the plant, that beautiful plant was a weed and it's fine. Yeah. There's also something about the fact that it's not it's not mowing over something. It's not it's it's ripping it it's out. It's ripping it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I, I, like mum. Mum and Dad used to always try and get me to do some weeding in the garden, like, yeah. you know, growing up. Go, Why don't you go help us with the weeding? And Mike says, I don't know what is a weed and what is a flower. We're going to rip something out. That was so I feel validated in my excuses now for yeah. not getting out and getting was, in the garden and weeding. Cer- certainly making an effort and then it backfiring. I remember I was uh, – I, I just had Gabriel. I thought I was doing such a good job. And it was like it was like a really pleasant situation. Like Jesse was in the kitchen. I was occupying Gabriel on this thing, this gravity bouncer. Does anyone know what a gravity bouncer is? It's like a chair that that goes down Bounces. and up. Like a like a trampoline. Oh. Yeah. Oh, anyway. I want an adult one. Yeah, exactly. It's like a your baby rocking chair sort of thing. Yeah. And um I, I was pushing it low, and the lower he went. I was also watching the news, and the lower it went, sort of the more fun he was having. Anyway, <laughs> what do you think happened? Did he so, <laughs> Did he slingshot into space? <laughs> he it snapped and he oh. fell down onto the ground. Oh. Not far. We're talking like a few inches, yeah. and then the night was ruined. Like that was. It was oh just. God, Oh. It was a good time, but you tell Jesse that. I feel like the uh, life of your baby um, <laughs> outdoes the ornamental bush. So thank you for telling me that story, uh, making me feel. Better. 
I've been holding on to that for ages. Triple R. For over 30 years, the Victorian Women's Trust has advocated for women and girls and in lockdown has launched Feminist Fridays, a fortnightly live stream series of conversations between feminists on issues that matter. Today's session at midday features musician and friend of the show, Jess Ribeiro, in conversation with Ella Hooper and her head of their public chinwag. Jess joins us on the line now. Welcome back to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. What What's on the agenda today? Uh, so today, Ella and, well, hopefully I won't ask Ella too many questions about killing Heidi um, <laughs> because cause I'm secretly obsessed and sometimes I look at old footage of her from when she was like 14 <gasps> years old and I just love it so much. So I'll probably have to bring that up. Well, what is it about What, what is it about the footage that, that keeps you coming back and transfixed? I think that it's looking back at the 90s when there weren't very many, oh, there weren't as many, like, female musicians as perhaps what there is emerging now. Mm-hmm. And going back and, you know, for me, Adelita and uh, Ella Hooper and, you know, Sarah from the Super Jesus, like there was just mm-hmm. a, a small handful of people um, and... Yeah, and Ella Ella Hooper was one of those those people that I saw on the TV on a Saturday morning. You know, coming from a very small town, I didn't have access to much music at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I used I'll- to get really excited um, when I'd catch the train to to Melbourne from from Albury because it had stop in Violet Town, and I and I was like, oh my god, that's where Killing Heidi's from. <laughs> Maybe I'll see them. I get so I understand your excitement. Yeah, you know, uh, so, yeah, so I'm going to be talking to Ella about the role of music and arts in a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's what one is of it. Well, what has been the role of music for you <laughs> in this crisis? Well, I've been lucky enough to listen to music during this crisis. What that's- music are you listening to? Music that I've never listened to before. I don't I just go on weird tangents. I was listening to Beethoven and I was listening to a lot of James Brown. You know, like after that a documentary that they had. I don't know. I, you know what I've been listening to? I wanted to say thank you to you all because during these like weird and crazy times, if I'm in the car and I turn the radio on, you're still there. <laughs> like the the radio is still there, even if it's like you know, even if it's been, if there's been moments where I've turned it on and they've said, "Well, we were about to have an interview with so so and so, and something's happened." But <laughs> for me, I feel like um, the radio is keeping the structure of the world. Like it's it's just kind of just keeping things okay for like. Normal? Well, we'll we'll get you back on for Radiothon to expand on this. I think. Yeah. uh, (laughs) No, thank you. But but is is there uh, you know is music making you more emotional? Are you connecting with it more? Is there what about the times you listen to it? Oh yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good. Sorry, I'm still waking up. (laughs) (laughs) Stealing my material, fella. Just taking some notes here. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> later on today. So you keep asking the questions and I'll write them down and then I'll ask Philip. Um, uh, could you repeat that question? No, I mean, it's, it's just your, it's, it's more about your relationship with music and in how it's, I know you're listening to, you're expanding your taste, but for me, in connecting. For me, I think that music and the arts are really healing. And I think music is really healing. And I've been doing some really strange stuff at home, investigating vowel sounds. So, you know, like practicing ah, e, oh, ooh. Like, do, you know, I don't know. That music can be really healing. And that's. That's what. Have you found, uh, has it been difficult to be creative in this crisis? No way. I'm always having to be creative because things are always going wrong. So it's like, oh, fuck, what am I going to I mean, oops. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got to be a bit creative here. Sorry, guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> Up. I think it's um, the fourth f bomb today. It's fine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth Carty. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah. How much but, are you missing? Are you missing it all? Being able to go and see music. I know I am being able to go and see bands. I just it only just occurred to me recently that I I don't even know when I'm going to be able to do the next. Be able to go and see someone play or playing yourself. Oh, yeah, I I really miss playing. Um, with uh, with the whole band, that makes me feel emotional because, I, you know, I think that expressing myself creatively is like exercise and, you know, an exorcism or exercise as in physical activity. So, yeah, that, that makes me feel emotional. Going to gigs, not so much because I can be pretty introverted um, and feel weird in public, but I do like playing music with other people and I do like playing music for people. Mm. There's also the uh, the idea that people have thought that there would be lots of great art to come out of the pandemic. Are you picking up on that? Well, hopefully, I, yeah. People talk about you know we're we're all chipping away at something at home, mm. but maybe it's the art of everyday living. Like you know, I don't want to sound cheesy, but I am cheesy, and uh, <laughs> maybe it's. Just those small things. Like one of my friends said the other day for the first time in her life she folded her underwear and, you know, she was like folding her clothes that she took off the line and she's like that, it, you know, she's like I've never given myself the time to ever do that. So mm. perhaps it's the, you know, these small creative acts that we just <laughs> rather than making, you know, a big opus. But in saying that, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> and what about things that you've missed out on? I suppose you can't travel anymore. Yes. Yeah. All my travel plans. Mm. And? And all your memories. He just what wants mem- you to tell a story about a Berlin sex club <laughs> that you said you'd tell us oh, off yeah. air. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's almost the anniversary of the time that I was in Berlin and it was my friend's birthday and they told me to meet them at this club and I showed up and I had some jeans on and a T-shirt and they were thoroughly disappointed because they were they were wearing black, like, leather, not leather, but black, black plastic little outfits and I was like, what the hell is this? And they said, Jess, we're going to the sex club and we're really disappointed in how you're, how you're dressed. And I was like, what the hell? And I said... 
oh, well, all right. And then I, and then I said, well, we might as well go in, we'll try to get in. And then so I said to them, look, you seem really nervous because they were nervous and I wasn't because I'd, I'd – um, I don't know what I can because I was I was a little I'd had a drink or something and anyway, um, I, so, you know I tried hash for the first time or something. I was lying. They were so disappointed because they looked incredible, and I said to them, "Just relax." And I said, "Pretend that you're German. Don't speak." And I said to them, "Don't speak, or we won't get in." And they said, "Do you speak German?" And I said, "Yeah," and. Um, because I was watching this like group of people from the UK, and uh, they got they didn't get in because they were talking too much. So I said, just pretend we're German, and then so we got to the door, and the person said something to us in German, and I just didn't say anything. I just kind of nodded my head and grunted, and then we got let in, and we went in, and there was a big swimming pool. And, um, there was a waterfall with like rainbow colored lights and there was this massive sauna and all of these beats coming out of the sauna and uh and I said to my friends should we go in the sauna and they were like yeah okay and I looked around and I noticed that everyone around the swimming pool well they weren't swimming they were just like kind of putting their toes in and they were all naked and they all had really good bodies and they all had blonde hair and I don't have a good body and I don't have blonde hair and I was like oh my god and then this woman like a host came up to us and she kind of gestured for us to take our clothes off so we took them off and then you were meant to have a shower but um I was standing behind my friend I wonder if she's listening to today hello Hannah it's me Jess um and uh yeah, and this woman, and, and I looked at my two friends and I said, you guys don't have any pubes, no, <laughs> except for me. I had like this mouth, like so many pubes and, um, and, the, and no one had pubes. And I said, Hannah, Dan, you don't have any pubes. And they said to me, and they said, Jess, that's okay, you know, you're you, you're just you, you're natural. Yes. And, and um, I said, oh, my God. And then as soon as I'd said that, this woman handed me a pair of scissors. So I thought she wanted me. I was naked and um, in a club with all these naked people around me. So then I started um, just cutting off my pubes and because uh, I thought that I was like, maybe you're not meant to have pubes at this club because there's like this cleanliness process you have to go through. And then so I start cutting off my pubes and then the host notices and she grabs the scissors. And she yells at me and then she, like, takes the scissors and she cuts off this little string that was hanging off one of my girlfriend's bras. And I was like, oh, shit. So I'm, I mean, I, so I'm standing there with half pubes and I've got these hand pubes and we're meant to go and, like, have a shower and get into the spa or whatever, the sauna. And um, anyway... It was, and it was a terrible moment and so I just stood there naked and fat with like half-cut pubes and, you know, black pubes and no one else had, like everyone had blonde hair. And so then I had to put my pubes, I rolled them up really quickly and put them in the corner, the floor, because I wasn't a thing. It was, ter- it was terrible. I'm never going back there. And there was no sex. There was nothing. Right. Feminist Fridays, held by the Victorian <laughs> Women's Trust, is a session between. 
12pm. Just Ribeiro and Ella Hooper. Ella Hooper. <laughs> stream today at noon. You can enter Vic Women's Trust on Facebook for uh, the stream and more details. Jess, have fun today. And <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.